In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Hello, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Hunter Mulcair. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod, a show all about psychology. We've unexpectedly had a bit of a break, and so to ease back into things, we've prepared a classic Two Shrinks show. A niche topic and a handful of articles we've found to delve into it. For tonight, we'll be talking about why do we cry? What is it about a movie, a strong emotion or pain that makes us tear up? Across all ages, genders, cultures, most of us cry, but we're the only animal to do so. Whether it's a good bout of crying, that's crying while driving, shedding tears with others at a funeral or weeping with joy when celebrating, it seems that crying helps us to process our emotions and communicate with others. On the flip side, we all have values and beliefs about when it's not okay to cry. We know that boys cry more than girls until middle childhood, that people with more traditional masculine gender roles don't cry as much and describe feeling ashamed when they cry, and that sometimes crying is seen in a more favourable light than others. For example, a leader tearing up when offering an apology comes across as genuine, but full-blown sobbing from them and we'd be concerned, judgmental, say that it wasn't professional. We'll be talking through four pieces of research about crying. What makes us cry in response to music, infants' expectations, crying in therapy, and whether it actually helps. As always, we'd love it if you rated and reviewed the show on iTunes. A little goes a long way in helping people find us. So, shall we just jump straight into it? Let's just jump straight into it. So, music? So, I put my hand up for crying and music. Uh, Amy and I have, I'm not sure we've talked about on the show before, but a bit of, we talked, we joke about crying. Like, so, music that makes you or music that you will listen to and cry to mm. often whilst driving or I was late to driving so I took a lot of public transport back in the day with my Walkman and uh, definitely Oh, so that feels different to me I think because it, it's um, public private Yeah, you need to have sunglasses Oh, of course yeah, that's it <laughs> And, but yeah, so I found this article, Feeling Like Crying When Listening to Music, Exploring Musical and Cultural Features. It's by Catherine Cotter and colleagues. It's in the Empirical Studies of the Arts in 2019, Volume 37. So they talk about that feeling like crying in response to the arts. Uh, so that, that might be you know a lump in the throat to actual tears is quite common. And it's particularly a common response to music. So a previous study by the same lead author and it was a study of college students found 90% could remember a time that they had cried to music and in that study they'd found that two types of feeling like crying experiences that emerged when they did a statistical analysis called latent class analysis so the first type was an awe type experience so that was associated with like a inspired or transcended or euphoric emotions Mm -hmm. think like when you're feeling amazed or happy or inspired or or touched by awe when you're listening to something kind of like i i think of it as like an overwhelmed Mm. feeling and then there was a sad which was associated with essentially negative emotions, feeling sad, anxious, angry, upset, or out of control. In terms of personality traits, they found that openness to experience, so, so there's five major personality traits, and openness to experience is one of them, and they found that that predicts awe-inspired crying. Okay. And they found that neuroticism, unsurprisingly, predicted people reporting sad-inspired crying. So mm-hmm. if you're more neurotic, you're more likely to say, yeah, you know, I've, I've had this experience of crying whilst listening to music, and it's a sad-type experience. 
because you're more prone to being internally focused yep. on your yep. emotions. Yeah, yep. was that like I used to think about like you know somebody's like really open to experiences and stuff, they probably be you know more open to kind of letting go hmm. or, or be getting in touch with you know a thing. And I, I kind of like this actually because it made made me think about that some people get more out of certain types of musical experiences than others, hmm. and. You know, f- for my mind, like listening to classical music doesn't really do it for me, but I can imagine that some people would, or they, w- or mm. some people would go to a concert, and ha- even if they don't know whatever type of the music it is, that they'd be more likely to go, yeah, wow, that was really amazing. I really felt something. Mm. Whereas I think I'm, I'm, I'm not that person. It's funny with classical music. If I hear it recorded, nothing. Mm. But if I hear it live particularly in an orchestra situation where you can like feel it physically mm. in your stomach or whatever mm-hmm. then i do yeah so i can imagine that there's a bit of variability yeah interesting so what they wanted to do in this study was to explore more about what differentiates these two states aside from emotional tone mm-hmm. right so they studied surveyed 961 participants so 338 from north carolina university and 573 from Amazon Mechanical Turk. So if you've not heard of that mm. before, that's a crowdsourcing website, hires people to do on-demand jobs. So mean age of this sample was 28.7 years. So young, but ranged up to 80 years, 18 to 80 years, mm. 61% female, 72% white. And they answered what I think is the best name scale I've come across in in all 70 episodes of which was the aptly named feeling like crying questionnaire although then i couldn't get uh i, I um i feel like dancing <laughs> i just couldn't get out of my head yeah that's fair yeah anyway um <laughs> so very simply this asks could you recall a time when you felt like crying or actually cried to music if they said yes, then they rated a range of different emotions, like you know, happy, sad, inspired, curious, anxious, out of control, goosebumps, all of things. And then they asked a range of other questions to capture the qualities of the music. You know, name and genre, lyrics, does this have special meaning to you? Mm-hmm. Familiar, live or recorded? Did you feel like crying beforehand? They also measured some personality traits. Mm-hmm. What they found was that 81% could remember a time when they felt like crying to music. So similar, like a little bit less than the last one. They seemed to think maybe it was an older age group and mm. maybe somehow that played a role. Similar to before, they found that openness to experience and neuroticism were positively associated with remembering a feeling like crying experience while listening to music. And they found, they did the same type of latent class analysis and they found the same thing again, two classes of experience. So the awe, so that was 40% of the sample and that talked about like high feelings of awe, wonder, amazement, and euphoria, feeling mm-hmm. touched when listening to a piece of music. And sad, the three core emotions there were sad, upset, and anxious. So, so you know, replicating the previous findings, what kind of music do you think would differentiate the two? Like what kind of genre of music? Well, yeah, or just what kind of music, yeah. It doesn't have to be genre, it could be anything. What kind of quality? I wonder about uh, lyrics being more for the sad mm-hmm. and no lyrics for the awe. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why. It's just what comes into my head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they found that actually. Mm. So that the sad class of music was found to be colder and more unpleasant music than awe, which was rated as more complex and more beautiful. Mm. They looked at genres and they found for both types of crying experiences, broad range. Okay. So 
19 and 120 in another hmm. right so there was no i had a great afternoon yesterday playing music my kids thought i was really weird <laughs> like i started playing one of the things that they um they uh, played was a Les Mis song. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like, why, is, why is that woman crying in the rain? <laughs> What's going on? Who's she singing about? Were you also crying? Uh, I didn't cry. Did feel the, the goosebump prickle Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Which I love. This, that's got a particular name. I'll have to look that up. Mm. So, or they, they was more often religious or gospel music and classical was associated with it. So, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So, mm. it'd be this. Side note, some of the YouTube comments about that piece were hilarious, about Germans dropping their bass for, for 200 years. Um, I feel like I've seen it played on like one of those slide whistles. <laughs> I'm sure it has been. <laughs> there is, um, there's a great Packer-Bells cannon that's played with rubber chickens. Yes, I've seen that. <laughs> it's so really funny. Anyway, sad, sad music, pop music uh, was much more commonly, so 11% versus 3%. And soul and R&B and country were roughly 10% mm. versus 5% for all. So mm. there were some differences. Rock was reporters triggering, feeling like crying at relatively similar rates between awe and sadness. Mm. So when I think about like a sad pop song... Straight up, I'd be thinking like Bonnevere. Mm. Come on, skinny love, just lay singing. To pour a little soap, we will never hear. My, 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 my. Staring at the sea. They asked some more in-depth questions and reported that the sad class of music was more likely to have special meaning to people, familiar and contain lyrics, like mm. what you said. Although they seemed to think that the statistical effects were relatively small. Most people had these experiences at home. Okay. Right, 60% for both classes. Mind you, it made me wonder whether actually that's probably where you listen to music the most. They I suppose did- it depends on your household, doesn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Yep. They didn't mention it, but in the text looking at the table... of people said they had a sad feeling like crying experience that was whilst in transit. Ah, see? Crying, Amy, crying. It's it's a beautiful thing. And I'm disappointed they didn't break it down into crying in a car or crying in public transport. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) And as I made a note here, the latter requires sunglasses. or crying was more likely in a live performance mm. versus recording. So 12% versus 1.5%. So I thought that was really So a little like what I said, mm. that feeling it physically. Yeah. There's something Yeah, about and that being overwhelmed different. and being in the moment. Mm. You know, and I feel like, uh, you know, I, I feel like probably both, you, you need to be in the moment, mm. right? Tying in with that is that people in the sad class had a high level of feeling like crying prior to listening to any music. 
okay. which made me think about like you know how we you and I joke about like well if you're feeling sad put on some yeah. sad music while driving and just let it out just right go for it and th- that made sense and people in the sad class are more likely to be alone mm-hmm. and that the music reminded them of someone or something yeah so they asked open-ended reasons why so that's the sad experience was because the music brought up specific memories, reminded them of this specific person. Mm. So I think about, you know, like, you know, grieving and playing a song that reminds you of them. Yeah. Or reminds or is about the grieving process, mm. for example. The all class was most frequently reported because they were overwhelmed mm. or they found it especially beautiful, mm. which kind of makes sense. And this personally meaningful was reported at similar rates across both types. Okay. So, so it wasn't more or less... They wrapped up by suggesting that awe-inspired crying is more likely the music is prompting. Like, it's the music itself. Mm-hmm. It's warm, it's beautiful, it's complex. But for sad, it seems to be these, like, extra musical themes of, of, of loss or of, you know, wanting to cry, feeling like crying beforehand or, you know, this being reminded. Of sort of, you know. And th- they talked a little bit about discussing emotions from an aesthetic event. Mm-hmm. which would be awe versus emotions about an event, yeah. which would probably be more the sadness-based crying. That makes stuff. sense. In the lead up to this show on our respective social medias, we, we said, tell us what's the song mm. that you like to cry to. So we've compiled a crying playlist for Spotify and that's up now. And uh, you, if you want to have a bit of a cry, you can flick through that and uh, let us know what you think. Tell me, what do you reckon, just thinking all about that stuff, mm. why, why does music cut through the, I'm in a mood to cry, so I want to cry? What, what, like, why do you think it does that? I feel like part of it is a, not quite primal, but like a gut response that we have to music. Mm. There's, it serves some sort of emotional function in all different ways. Mm. And then I think that, What came into my head when you asked that was how many teenagers in particular will want to play me a song in our session to explain how they've been feeling that week Mm. that they can't put into words. Mm. And it won't be that the song names a particular feeling, Mm. but I'll listen to it and then I'll get that feeling and then be able to help them come up with what it is. There's something about it that can tap into a murkier feeling Mm. or a kind of vibe of how things have been mm. more than just thinking it through logically yeah there's something there that's kind of clarifying yeah i don't know why like, in particular music goes so well with crying yeah. but um i mean I th- the, the thing i think about with with it is that it's a gestalt mm. like so it's it, it's more than just music plus lyrics it's the right. holistic. You know, there's something there's something bigger than that. Mm. You know, I think some people are very lyrically driven. Some people are not. You know, and I think sometimes it's a bit of a mixture, mm. particularly for that sad kind of stuff. Definitely. I, th- I, I, I don't know. I, I sort of think about like it drops your defenses or it, there is an element of like connecting on like mm. you sort of said that primal level or it kind of gets past your own defenses. I wonder as well whether it, because it fills some of the space in your head it overrides some of the cognitive element and just gets you to your feelings mm. because if you're actually paying attention to the music you can't be doing as much of the worrying along with it like there's something about putting your attention to this one thing yeah 
that's outside yourself. Yeah, and and that's why I like movies and things like that, you mm. know, because there's this really clever use of music to bring an emotion mm. that if you said, and the character is now feeling this way, or the character says, I'm feeling sad, yeah. but you get Luke Skywalker looking at the, the twin sons mm. and that music welling up, and it evokes an emotion. Mm. You don't need to be told. No. So just for a bit of fun or... <laughs> Maybe a little bit of crying. <laughs> we will drop in a few bits of criving type music in between the pieces of research. And this is Ave Maria. Shall we move on to babies? Yep. So tell us about babies. Uh, the crying research is full of research about babies. Like I reckon about a third. I don't know if you found that when you were looking at things. But the amount of infant research is huge. And I think that's partly because it taps into some of that primal, you know, there's an innate reason why mm, we cry. Mm. It serves a function. I really wanted to avoid the more difficult topics that come up with this. Um, Just enlighten the listeners on some of the more difficult topics. Uh, things like child abuse, unwell parents. Sh- shaking babies. Shaking babies. How men judge babies was mm. a common theme. Yeah. There's some stuff out there that's quite difficult. And anything comparing, say, healthy responses to babies always comes with the not so healthy responses i did i did i was trying to help you out with the research on that and i really did love the subgenre of the basically research for parents who were just like dealing with like crying babies and just hating it basically yeah there's really like you said to me is there something lighter we can do about babies and it's kind of like well we're psychologists who are looking no no what I did find, though, is one that I think is interesting and has a positive leaning to it. <laughs> Who would have thought that crying crying research could be depressing? About babies. That's <laughs> no, it, anyway. <laughs> Before I jump into it, this, this paper looks at this idea experimentally. So it's not to say that they're making babies cry just before I jump into it. But one thing to understand about infant research is that a whole bunch of experiments have been developed that apply across all different types of concepts, but that function the same way. And a really core one is a thing that's known about babies that if they're exposed to something that's kind of unfamiliar, doesn't quite fit with how they see the world, surprising, Mm -hmm. they look at it for longer and they want to look at it again and again and again. So think playing peekaboo with a baby and they just want to keep going for like an hour and you're done with it but they're like hang on a minute where did you go this is amazing i want to keep doing it to try and make sense of it 
And so that's the basis of what they use to study infants. Mm, mm. I found a study that's called Young Infants Expect an Unfamiliar Adult to Comfort a Crying Baby. Evidence from a Standard Violation of Expectation Task and Novel Infant Triggered Video Task by Jin and colleagues, 2018 in Cognitive Psychology. So if we understand that babies look at things longer when they're interested in them, we know that babies have a bunch of understandings about the social world and about how people should behave without actually being told them. So, for example, babies expect that in social situations someone will help rather than hinder someone trying to do an activity. They expect that a victim will be given care but not the perpetrator. They're surprised by that. And for securely attached babies, they expect that parents will return to a baby that's been left on their own so that parents always come back. Mm -hmm. So this research wanted to see whether babies would expect another baby they didn't know to be comforted by someone when they cried. They did three studies all using the same stimulus. Unlike hunters, I'm going to talk a little bit about the methodology because I feel like that's the crux of this, otherwise it makes no sense. Uh, They've got a video of a woman and a baby and the woman's folding washing with her back to the baby. There's a woman on the left-hand side of the screen, a chair in the middle of the screen, and then a baby to the right. You start to hear the noise of a baby crying or laughing. You can't see the baby. They're in a stroller, but you can hear a noise coming from that direction. The woman turns around and walks towards the stroller and the chair. Mm -hmm. In one condition, she bends over the stroller and pays attention to the baby. And in another, she ignores it and just puts the washing on the chair and then continues what's going on. The first study, they looked at babies around a year old. They used 44 babies for this task. I did like that there were 13 that were excluded for a bunch of reasons. (laughs) That included some, like they were fussy and they weren't paying attention. One that I liked was that they got distracted by their own shoes. (laughs) (laughs) This is the problem with working with babies. But so half were assigned to the crying condition, half were assigned to the laughing condition. (laughs) It just takes you back to the uh, Seven Deadly Sins pod where we were talking about the, the bear that wasn't wasn't using the bucket to get yeah, the honey. Exactly. Like, just stop using the shoes! <laughs> just come just on. watch the screen! There's oh. a TV! <laughs> I thought you are supposed to be from that generation that only wants screens. <laughs> Put it on an iPad. That exactly. So they were sat on their parents' lap in front of the TV and the parents had to be silent and close their eyes for the entire time. The screen showed a bright thing to grab the infant's attention and then they were shown a pre-trial video which was just the woman folding washing. Uh, So nothing, no crying or anything like that. And then they were shown two trials. One where the woman turned and just put the washing on the chair and another one where she attended to the baby. Mm -hmm. The infants looked significantly longer at the crying baby being ignored than the one being comforted. So that shows that they find this unusual that it was kind of odd Mm -hmm. so and for quite a lot longer so the average difference was for an extra five seconds looking at that so they're obviously confused by it there was no difference in how long they looked at the laughing babies they also rated the infants look of concern on their faces or of enjoyment when they were watching this video yeah the infants were not showing any signs of concern (laughs) about the baby being attended to or not attended to it was just kind of interest they were perplexed they were perplexed yeah wanted to try it with younger babies so they did it again with four month old babies made everything a little bit simpler well yeah well they they don't wear shoes so they don't wear shoes 
all good. <laughs> yeah. Made sure that the videos matched so that they weren't sort of confused by what it looked like. Yep. And they found the same thing again, that the babies looked a lot longer at the one not being comforted. It was even longer for that. The effect size was huge. It was 0.78. Mm. Um, and they looked for an average of an extra 10 seconds at the baby not being comforted than the one being comforted. Again, no concern or anything like that, that the baby wasn't being comforted, <laughs> just stared at it. Fun? I find it so funny. Just like, this is interesting. It's kind of that... Yeah. Yeah, babies are psychopaths. Babies are psychopaths. Once, once you've had them like poke and prod you, yeah. then like think nothing surprises yeah. me. I'm sorry. Like, like they want to watch it longer, but they're not particularly concerned. Yeah. The last thing they wanted to do was see whether the infants would want to watch it again if the baby wasn't comforted. And so they set up two screens and they got the parent to touch one of the screens to start the video so that the baby could see that's how you start a video. Mm. Played it and then the parent rolled their chair forward enough that the baby's arms could reach, shut their eyes and said nothing. And the babies chose to replay the not being attended to baby. Wow. Over the attended to. So I kind of, I thought that it was uplifting because yes, we're talking about crying babies and being ignored or attended to, but the base expectation was that they expected care. They expected someone who was upset to be, cared for yeah the theories that they thought are behind this one is that we have one theory is that we have an innate concern for others they thought that wasn't accurate because the babies were not showing no any signs of concern another one was that we have ideas about what should happen in the world that develop over time like schemas and things that we've spoken about before on this pod yeah about what should happen in particular circumstances and so babies have a base understanding of the world that babies should be comforted when they cry Mm. another one was that we might be born with an expectation that people will avoid harming one another and support our own people yeah this one's interesting in that they talked about previous research that being done with non-human characters and they found that babies only expected non-human characters that looked alike to care for an upset non-human character so say there was like a triangle and a square, two pairs of triangle and square. They didn't expect the adult triangle to look after the square baby, mm-hmm. only the square adult to look after the square yep. baby. Yep. So there's something about our own <laughs> people look after freaky, us. But yeah. It's kind of freaky. There's something about we expect people who are our people yep. to look after our us. Our tribe. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I guess I was thinking about it and going, well, you know, there's lots of people who become really distressed when they're not comforted or when they're not sort of responded to when they're upset and it often feels like that kind of primal gut Mm. there's something urgent and life-threatening about this that i'm not being responded to and it sort of it taps into that thing that right from the start we all want that kind of comfort yeah and think that that's how it should be yeah well and i think i think it kind of gets into like a discussion which will link quite nicely to what i'm about to talk about which is crying in therapy Mm. about was it four month old and a, and a one one yeah. year old hardwired, you know, so like something mm. innate and that what's the function of crying. Mm. And so, you know, you, you, you're talking about, you know, well, we have this expectation, but taking it a step back, what's, what's crying doing there and what's crying doing in most situations is signaling that mm. there's a need and I need to be looked after. 
Pass me that lovely little gun My dear, my darling one The cleaners are coming one by one You don't even want to let them start Knocking now upon your door They measure the room, they know the score They're mopping up the butcher's floor Of your broken little heart us now for what we done started out as a bit of fun here take these before we run away the keys to the So I, I've always been fascinated about crying in therapy. Anyone mm-hmm. who knows me as a therapist, you, you know, it's something that I always ask about when people are talking about cases, mm. you know, and really I, I was sort of doing some introspection and I was thinking like, why is that? Like, am I a sadist? <laughs> um, but, you know, like really it's, a, for me, I think it, it's about finding out if someone's emotions are activated mm. in session. So there's a branch of therapy called schema therapy and it would take that takes the opinion that after an assessment phase of treatment, that if someone's emotions are not active in session, then it's a waste of a session. Because mm, they're, if they're active, we're actively working on we're, we're making change. what's happened. Yeah. yeah. So by the same token, though, if someone is too distressed mm. in session, then that's counterproductive. You want someone to feel safe, mm. not overwhelmed. And you want them to be able to walk out the door with... The Goldilocks amount of emotion that has been triggered or is or, or was triggered. Mm. And often with a therapy session, there's kind of like a lead-in baseline, wherever yep. yours might be. Some people enter therapy really anxious, some not, yep. or flat, or whatever it might be. And then there's sort of a peaking, and then we try and bring people to a yep. stable point where it's safe for them to leave again. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think there's some cases where people come in shut off. Yeah. And, and actually your sort of job is to leave them activated, yeah. <laughs> but activated in a point where they, they don't feel unsafe and mm. the, the world is not awful. Mm. So this is something that I think about a lot. And in some cases I'll be overt. Mm. I was having a conversation with someone recently and said, okay, I noticed that you're upset. 10 out of 10 upsets too much. Or if it gets above eight out of 10, mm. then I want, I want us to stop. I want you to tell me, mm. you can't stop this mm. process. Where is it at now? And it feels artificial, 
it is artificial, but but I, you know, you you want to signal somebody. Look, I don't want you decompensating any, mm. right? My job, my job's here to is keep you safe mm. in the first instance. Second instance is do some work. Yeah. So, also another pattern, you know, you see with patients is they become tearful in session, mm. and then the next session, they aren't. Yeah. Defenses are up, mm. and then the following session they'll be tearful. So very very curious, and so I'm always interested in that. So this led me to patient crying in psychotherapy, who cries and why. It's by Kristen Capps and her colleagues from the Dern Institute of Advanced Psychological Studies at our Delphi Uni. And that's in Clinical Psychology and Psychotherapy 2015. So straight up they point to a, a lack of systemic studies into when patients cry in therapy. Mm. Most have been case studies mm-hmm. or studies on therapist attitudes to patients crying or studies looking at when Therapists cry. <laughs> okay. Spoiler, psychodynamic therapists cry more often than CBT therapists. Huh. <laughs> Which, my, like my initial response to that is it's interesting given that psychodynamic historically comes from the idea of being a blank slate mm. that doesn't respond. Yeah. It's interesting that that group cries more. Yeah. But I, see, my impression is that CBT has a lot more rules about mm. Therapy is about this mm. and we're doing this. Whereas we're working versus, on this thing. Versus sort of that free association or, or whatever it is. There's, there doesn't seem to be any studies on the demographic profile of patients who cry and the causes and consequences of crying therapy, mm. right? which is interesting in that it's such a fundamental part. Like mm. it's such a common thing that we see as a, as a worker mm. on a day-to-day basis, yeah. right? You know, I always... It was a dentist, I think, have like a high suicide rate, and mm. you know, and that's always attributed to them having their their patients in pain. Mm. But psychologists, we you know, it's not physical pain; it's emotional pain. But we see that all, all the, the time. time. And I think in the latest one, then I've actually got two studies I'm going to talk about. The, the in the second study they talk about, I think it's fourteen to twenty-one percent of therapy sessions have someone crying in it. Yeah, what's interesting is that clients don't seem to expect that. So you know, I work with kids and teenagers who might not have heard much about therapy before they've come to see me and I often catch them just looking at the box of tissues that's on the coffee table and it's not like it's just there I don't mention it no but there's kind of like a glancing at it multiple times until something comes up where they start to get a bit teary and then they look at it like they're not allowed to use the tissues and I like it always makes them laugh when at some point I go like I got about a hundred boxes in the cupboard. This mm. is this is fine. This happens, and then often there's laughter, and then the tears break. Yeah, there's something about oh, hang on, other people do this here. Oh, really? Yeah, because yeah. they haven't heard much about therapy yeah. because they're little. No, I say I like the people who've been in therapy a lot, and then if you're using this particular brand of tissues, that <laughs> the final ones are blue, <laughs> so you so yeah. you know that you're about to run out. Yeah, and like someone said, like. You know, it was like a war movie, you know, when they're like, you know, I'm running out. (laughs) (laughs) They're running out of ammo. And um, yeah, I mean, so one of the things that patients do or people do is it's interesting you say that people don't expect it. A lot of most people will apologize for crying. Oh, yes. Yeah, the children do as well. And adults do as well. And it's like it's it's really, really interesting. It's really important to be non-judgmental and accepting and, and, and stuff. But, you know, and you do get patients who will be like, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm using up all your stuff. Usually I tell them a, a story about how once in my training, I ran out of the tissue box, ran out like at the start of a session and me and this patient had decided to work on a particular problem. Yep. 
we'd led into it. This was the session we were going to work on it. Mm-hmm. And we ran out straight away. No. <laughs> I've never been without tissues ever since. <laughs> yeah, you always have one of those little packets in your work bag. <laughs> yep. 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 So... Um, we got there in the end, hmm. and then that patient did come back. So <laughs> it was, it was, it was all good. It was all good, but I was scarred by making sure. Anyway, well, oh, I'm on the couch here, Amy. Um, <laughs> Again, another thing where it's different because the kids just use their sleeve if we run uh, out. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, although as psychologists we are trained to mm. interpret crying, we get taught essentially how to act when it happens. Mm. Just not concretely. Not concretely. Yeah, I know. It was interesting, but like sort of through supervision, mm. right? Not, but not like in session, when this happens, do this, mm. right? The, these authors wanted to get some actual evidence to help therapists make informed choices mm. to meet the needs of patients, right? Okay. So classic evidence building. So they want to look at how, how often people cry in therapy, demographic clinical characteristics, what interventions are associated with it, how do patients feel about it. Can I go some theory? Yeah. Let's go some theory. So, theory about crying, psychoanalytic theory views affect quantitatively. So, like how much how much affect is contained within somebody. As so, a, as a result, hundred percent sad or eighty <laughs> percent sad. Well, well, no, but so like so as a result, uh, catharsis is seen mm. as necessary to discharge mm-hmm. this suppressed affect essentially. So, as a built up. I need to let it out. Yeah. And you hear people say that, yeah. right? And it's a very simple thing. So like, you cry until you're done crying. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you don't, the idea is that it might result in the formulation of some symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's the sick Stilpen, which is the German for cry oneself out. Mm-hmm. Although Google Translate puts that as let off steam. <laughs> so <laughs> Potato, potato. W- Whatever authors. Anyway, um, but basically that crying is a discharge of affect mm-hmm. and, and the therapist views it as cathartic. You know, it's good to release feelings, good to release guilt, right? And everyone gets that mm. idea, blah, blah, blah. Lots of studies, people think that, mm-hmm. right? There is possibility that individual differences as to whether crying is cathartic. Extroversions being found to be related to relief and positive feelings post-crying. Mm-hmm. Uh, dutifulness is shown to predict feeling worse post-crying. Mm. Other studies have found no relationship between the personality and benefit of crying. So there's, varia- there's variation. So the, the, what they were saying is that they think that there's, there's some differences, but actually it's not conclusive. Mm. So it does actually need some more research. There's a more recent um, model of crying by... Has a great name, Vingerhoots and colleagues. Nice. And they were saying that crying stems from interactions among various factors, biological, so hormones, physical state, psychosocial, so individual characteristics, personality, and situational, so social norms, surrounding environment. Mm-hmm. So you appraise the situation based on these three factors. Your emotional response is met with support from others mm-hmm. of some type, and that either alters the situation so, like, someone supportive, not supportive, or it alters your appraisal of what of your own state, mm-hmm. and then that determines your emotional state and whether you cry further or not. Mm-hmm. Psychotherapy is situational, but also relational. Yeah. So, it's a situation where people come in expecting to be able safe to cry, but it's mm-hmm. also relational in that the therapist, you know, you have a relationship with a therapist, and how the therapist acts mm. will trigger that mm. or, or can trigger that. There's another theory, which is crying understood as attachment behavior, which mm. I was talking about before. Crying functions as a relational message. Mm. 
usually to do with issues of separation or loss, that it's shaped socially by others' reactions to someone's crying. So crying signals to a therapist that something's wrong and a response of some kind is required. Mm. Out of therapy, it's been shown that women cry more often than men. Mm. So that's adults. Mm. Personality traits have been shown to relate to how people view crying. High neuroticism, cry more often. They view weeping as a coping mechanism. Extroverts, those with greater emotional stability, think there's positive effects from crying. People with anhedonia, mm-hmm. which is a lack of pleasure, mm. or that you know, so if someone's depressed, they often have anhedonia and they can't find enjoyment in anything. And alexithymia, how would you describe alexithymia? Having trouble putting words to Emotions. how you're feeling. Yeah, they seem to have lower proneness to crying. Mm. And what was interesting is crying's not consistently been found to be a symptom of depression. Mm. And being unable to cry is also not found to be consistently a symptom of depression. Yeah. So it seems to be quite mixed. They've also found that there's increased crying common in those with borderline personality Mm. and also in people with a history of childhood sexual abuse. Mm. So those two groups would probably overlap a bit. Mm. Um, But I guess really what, what I'm trying to sort of say there is, hey, look, there's a couple of different theories about why we cry and there's also some research that shows that personality traits and also things like a borderline personality mm. relate to how uh, likely you are how likely you are to cry this study 52 patients admitted to a psychodynamic university community outpatient clinic okay so commonly psychologists will train in a university clinic mm. so that it'll be staffed by trainees who are completing their postgraduate studies and often they um often people say oh you know that you don't get any co- many complex cases <laughs> through 100 percent of this sample had an access one disorder yep 58 percent had an access to disorder <laughs> yep okay so that means though the 58 percent had a personality disorder yeah and 20 not complex at all and 25 percent in addition had access to traits yeah so if you don't know what i mean basically we're sort of saying that people at this clinic definitely had psychological slash psychiatric problems. Mm. And um, a complexity there. A complexity there. Yeah. So what they did is they videotaped an initial session and looked at the crying behavior in that session. Okay. Actually, there was three sessions. So there was a structured interview, an interview follow-up, and a third session, which is a feedback session, mm-hmm. where a therapist talks about basically what they've discovered you know, the inter, inter and intrapersonal themes, what they think is contributing to their person's problems. They would explore them. They would develop some treatment goals. And there's that session mm-hmm. where there's a conversation going on. Mm. That's that, the one that's found. That's what they looked at yeah. whether, whether these patients were crying. So rather than I can imagine the first two are more like background information. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure presenting that issue. Is, yeah. they'd be quite easily you get crying in that, but mm. it seems like it's more therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah. They looked at the presence or absence of crying and a range of measures. The global assessment of functioning, mm. so which I don't think I, I've, I'd never use, but basically it's a score between zero and 100. Uh, Amy's just... I'm just, I'm just going to need a minute. Yeah. <sighs> and, and look, we won't go into it. <laughs> Please don't. Uh, they had an assessment of the presence of personality disorder, a uh, questionnaire about childhood sexual abuse, mm-hmm. evaluation of the session, and also evaluation of therapeutic alliance. Mm-hmm. So 19% of the sample cried, so 10 of the 52. Okay. None of the demographic characteristics 
seem to be significant, although I think the small sample size mm. hampered it. Crying was less likely in those who had a higher level of personal occupational and social functioning yeah. on the, the GAF. More features of borderline personality, higher severity of childhood sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Those were associated with crying or m- more likely to be crying. Mm-hmm. BPD result was understood two ways, which is one is that you know, they found that people with borderline personality are more likely to have childhood sexual abuse. And so maybe it's to, and, and that's known to be associated with crying more often, but also really that borderline personality is a disorder of affect regulation. Mm. So you get a lot of variation. Yeah. 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 So we've done a couple of podcasts on borderline personality. If you don't know what we're talking about, have a listen to those. They're, it's a very, very interesting, complex, challenging disorder. Mm. Patients generally experience crying as related to feeling the session was more difficult and problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what was really, really interesting didn't impact on the therapeutic alliance. Mm. So that remained high. So the relationship between therapist and client was unaffected by crying, mm. right? There's no difference between cries and non-cries. So, which I thought was really, really useful finding to kind of say, you know, if someone's well, someone's crying, it doesn't mean that the therapeutic alliance is weakened, mm. but also not strengthened. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. Although I've got another study which perhaps would argue differently, but I think the 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 did basically, despite having a difficult session, connection with the therapist remains strong. Mm. And you can imagine for those groups that that actually might be related. Yeah. I'm thinking theoretically yeah. that feeling heard and understood might actually trigger tears just as much as anything else. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that. Am I jumping ahead of oh, the no. results? <laughs> I've got an article about attachment. Okay. <laughs> is that why you're looking so pleased <laughs> with yourself? I'm so pleased with it. <laughs> Amy's favourite theory is attachment theory. Correct. Um, and and so I found it. But we'll talk about that in a <laughs> This is what I liked. They looked at the interventions that therapists used prior to crying. Three interventions covered 85% of the crying events. Okay. Right. So this is a how to make your yep. clients cry? One. Encourages the patient to experience or express feelings. The, so how are you feeling now? Mm. Or mm, tell me more about that feeling. Mm. Or my classic, can we pause on that? Something's come up for you. Can we just sit with it for a minute? Oh, nice. Mm. The suggesting an alternate understanding that was not previously recognized by the patient. Mm. I wonder how much of that behavior was just normal adolescent behavior. Mm. Or focusing on wishes, fantasies, dreams, and early memories. So, uh, Amy, if you could imagine a conversation with your friends or family about this issue, how would that go? Mm. That kind of thing. So, basically, that noticed that there was a sequence of, there was an affectively charged topic. The theme topic was relational in manner, or it was to do with someone's sense of self. Mm-hmm. The intensity was at a level that the patient probably wasn't quite aware of. And then the therapist directed the patient to attend to that topic mm. in, in one of these ways, or mm-hmm. there was a few others, right? Which I thought fit quite nicely with the way and I would And it'd be work. consistent with when I would say as well that yep. people have cried in my presence at yep. work. Yep. Yeah, and so, you know, viewing crying here is integrating new information into old effective mm. relationship schemas, you know, or, you know, being less judgmental of yourself about mm. a particular action or something like that. Mm. And, and understanding that something has been brought up for you at that point or yeah and then yeah. kind of like oh maybe i don't need to be quite as hard on myself mm. or or you know hey wow that's maybe I'm that not, makes sense you know maybe, maybe i'm not, not i'm not realized I'm, I'm sad or angry about this or i was hurt mm. i thought i was okay but i was but you know that kind of thing 
So, you know, triggering an attachment or relational response in the therapist, mm. you know, and that the therapists in the study were patient, mm-hmm. accepting, they were active in their support, normalized, validated, mm. that kind of thing. They help bring it out, yeah. hold the emotion and are there for them, mm. which is, you know, good therapy as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Um, second study, uh, and I know I've been talking for a while, I'll try, <laughs> I'll try and whip through it. Patients crying experiences in psychotherapy and relationship with working alliance, therapeutic change and attachment styles. So this is a 2021 study, mm-hmm. Genova et al. in psychotherapy. Patients crying about 14 to 21% of sessions. Mm-hmm. In addition to helping someone sort of bear their distress and realize it's painful but tolerable and the benefit of expressing something not in words, it's also this attachment-related behavior. This you know, is a powerful strategy to establish and maintain caregiver behavior. Mm. So, what was fascinating, Amy, previous research found that therapist attachment styles were stronger than patient effects on crying behavior. <laughs> so, that patients cried more or less depending on a therapist's attachment style than the client's attachment style. Interesting. To give you an example. So, if someone... Also makes a lot of sense. Someone yeah. is a, a therapist with a high level of avoidant attachment. Mm. They had patients who cried more at the beginning of therapy but that reduced over time. Mm-hmm. So they were essentially sort of playing a deactivating role. Yeah, a containing. A containing role, but because they're not, they're not overly emotionally mm. people themselves. Right? A therapist with an anxious attachment style, so they're keen for, for closeness. Mm. Right? Those therapists had clients who cried more over time. Mm-hmm. You know, so basically they're hyperactivating that attachment system mm. when presented with distressing emotions. Yeah. I love that finding. Yeah, it's amazing. So this was a follow-up study or a, mm. you know, expanding on that stuff. So they wanted to explore crying, therapeutic alliance, change attachment. Online survey, 106 patients. Patients or clients? Therapists? So, so, so it was a survey of people in who'd yeah. been in therapy. Mean time in treatment was about two years. Mm-hmm. So they put the word out to therapists. The crying in therapy survey. <laughs> Such great names. So there was three parts, demographics, crying in everyday life, crying in therapy, mm-hmm. right? There was a measure of alliance, change in therapy and also attachment. So they found that 83% had cried at least one time across their two years of treatment. Mm-hmm. Sadness, frustration and powerlessness, the main emotions there, which fits with this attachment-based crying theory. 42% thought that crying improved the therapeutic relationship. And no one thought that it worsened it. Okay. They found that when the therapeutic alliance is perceived as strong, then patients experience the crying as useful Mm. as as a moment for resolution of negative feelings. But if the crying experience is followed by negative feelings, then patients' perception of the therapeutic alliance was generally poor. Mm. So what I took from that is it's vital as a therapist to explore client's crying experience to assess what's going Mm. on it to deepen the therapeutic relationship so it's a moment that you need to treat respectfully but you also need to make sure that you don't just leave it Mm. essentially there was in this study there's almost no relationship between patient attachment styles and their experience of therapy Mm -hmm. there was a complex set of relationships i'll try and explain it those with a dismissive attachment style hang on Patients with a dismissive attachment style, yep. or yeah, yep. okay. So for a patient with a dismissive attachment style, so I'm thinking, oh, you Star Wars before, so like I'm thinking like Han Solo, mm-hmm. like it's dismissive. They want to feel independent. They want to feel self-sufficient, not depend on others. If they cry in therapy in the context of a good relationship with their therapist, mm-hmm. 
then they tend to feel more relieved and perceive more therapeutic change mm. mm-hmm. than the average bear. Than the average rookie. <laughs> the average rookie, that's it. Um, preoccupied attached individuals, so think Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. needy, right? They feel uncomfortable being without close relationships. Mm. They want quick, increased levels of emotional intimacy. But others obviously see them as needy and reluctant to get close. Mm. If they cry and their working alliance is not good, mm. then they tend to be more concerned about how to reach their therapy goals, perceive less change. Mm. And perhaps they're concerned that the therapists are going to reject them, which kind makes of makes sense. sense. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my, I guess, my repeating what I said before, my comment really is if someone cries, you need to attend to that alliance and the mm. goals of therapy. Being non judgmental, which is what all, all therapists should do, link back to the goals of therapy. Mm. Nice. Yeah. So, I really like. I really like that that last piece of like understanding the attachment bit. Mm. Interesting. There are moments that the words don't reach. There is suffering too terrible to name. You hold your child as tight as you can and push away the unimaginable. The moments when you're so deep it feels easier to just swim down the Hamiltons move uptown and learn to live with the unimaginable I spend hours in the garden I walk alone to the store and it's quiet uptown I never liked the quiet before children to church on Sunday, a sign of the cross at the door, and I pray that never used to happen before. If you see him in the street, walking by himself, talking to himself, have pity. Philip, you would like it uptown, it's quiet uptown. He is working through the Every day they say he walks the length of the city. You knock me out, I fall apart. Can you imagine? I feel like my final study fits quite nicely with that one. Yep. I found one on that's called When and For Whom Does Crying Improve Mood? a daily diary study of 1,004 crying episodes by Billsmar and colleagues, 2011 Journal of Research in Personality. Like the authors in your study, they started with talking about how there's a widespread belief that crying is helpful and it's sort of cathartic, but the research has been done retrospectively. So you ask someone to think of a time that mm. they cried, how they felt, etc. And so... On the plus side, when you ask people about that stuff, they usually say they felt relief, resolution, greater understanding of the issue, those types of things. Or they say that they felt worse, that they felt embarrassed, tired, weak. Yeah. Yeah. But so they wanted to look at what would happen if you gathered the data on the day. Perspectively, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And to see whether there were any mood or social factors that played a part in how helpful it was or wasn't. Mm. This study formed part of a larger one. They were using 
university students who were completing a daily diary and it was the study was focusing on mood changes across female menstruation cycles so the duration of the diary data that they've gathered was for two menstrual cycles so that ranged from 40 to 73 days Mm -hmm. depending on the woman there was at 97 students at the end of each day i'm I'm assuming all women all women (laughs) yep Uh, at the end of each day they responded to scaled questions about their mood urge to cry whether they cried or not and if they did cry they estimated the duration that they cried the intensity which was rated from misty eyed through to like full body (laughs) sob (laughs) yeah um whether they're alone with one other person or with multiple people whether the situation changed after they cried and the location of where they cried. They also reported whether they felt better, worse or the same after crying relative to before they cried. Crying occurred on average 16% of days, ranging from 2% to 73%. So pretty huge variability. Participants cried on average 10 times over the two-month period. And the location was disappointing to me with our previous things about about crying. Only 1% cried in transit. Mm. And I wondered, though, this study was conducted in Amsterdam. And yep. I was thinking about bikes. the amount of bikes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And public transport, where the people cry less. We don't really listen to music whilst, uh, whilst on bikes. No, and I wonder whether you'd stop the bike if you were crying. Like, you know, whether you'd pull over on I the side of I a canal and have a good sob. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean if, you, if you're going to sob anywhere, the side of a canal is probably... That's probably... Probably yeah, pretty good. Pretty Maybe good. It was a snowy day or, a, or, a, or sort of a autumnal day would be better. Yeah, I think like, like sort of misty. Mm, oh, mm. yeah, a bit of fog. But not raining, pouring with no, rain. Cause no. Because then it's uncomfortable. No. You need a car for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the most common locations were the living room and the bedroom. There was also another category. They didn't list bathroom on the list of locations. And I was thinking about how many of my clients cry in the shower and thinking, I wonder how many of the other category was actually bathroom. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or bath, crying in the bath. Crying in the bath, crying in the shower. <laughs> We're <Yeah>. so black. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the most common reasons for crying were conflict, loss, witnessing the suffering of others. Yeah. People cried for 30 seconds to 2.5 hours and the average reported time was eight minutes. Yeah. And most reported the intensity of crying ranging from moist eyes to soft sobbing. (laughs) So not many went into the sort of wailing or the full body. No. You know. No. Yeah. Okay, so the people who cried more often and who described a greater urge to cry had a lower mood in general. Yep. And so how they calculated that was that they averaged their mood ratings across the entire study to come up with an average positive and an average negative mood score. Mm-hmm. So people who were lower so, were more so likely the, to cry. So the, it was their mood across the month. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And which fits with the idea that some people who are depressed or who are sad more often cry more frequently. Mm-hmm. But like you talked about, it's a bit murky, that one. The diary is also... Well, I think there's a difference between being depressed and being sad. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The diary also showed a pattern with people reporting worse mood in the two days prior to crying 
and then in the two days after. So it kind of peaked on the crying day. There was mm. gradual escalation, tears, yep. and then a gradual recovery back to baseline. So who benefited from crying? Most people, 60%, reported no change in their mood after they cried from before. For 30%, mood improved, and for about 9%, mood worsened. The people who didn't benefit as much reported a more overall negative mood on the days around crying. So they were generally sad. So that's the 60% or that? The people who didn't benefit as much, yeah. 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 The people who benefited cried more intensely than the people who didn't benefit. Yep. But there was no difference in duration. So yep. it was more about how much so they, you... So they need to cry harder. Yeah, you need to just sob, like get the full... You're hole. not crying hard enough. Yeah, skip the misty eyes, Sorry, just... Everything's <laughs> awful, are we? Anyway. Yeah, yep. so, so people who really sobbed and let it out yep. had more benefit than the people who, you know, just got a little bit teary and didn't yeah yeah having one other person present was helpful more so than anything else mm. and having multiple people there or crying on your own was related to feeling worse yeah yeah it was hypothesized that with one person that people feel supported but with multiple there's more of a chance of feeling embarrassed ashamed mm. that sort of thing judged yeah and when you're on your own you don't get any comfort from anyone no. Um, they also thought that if you're with multiple people, you might attempt to suppress the crying, which yeah. would kind of counterbalance would you, the effect yeah. of releasing it. Yeah. Did they say why they think that the intensity was important? No. No. Because no. I mean, I think it, you know would fit with that catharsis. That catharsis. I Meaning, if you're crying and, and it's an attachment thing, I mean, I guess if it's a little bit of tears versus a lot of tears, mm. it probably signals a bit more. But mm. I'd view more of the catharsis kind of. I'd component. say so. Kind of yeah, that sort of sense of release. Mm. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, if the situation improved as, as a result of you crying, people felt better. Yep. And in terms of the reasons for crying, that played a part as well. So if people were crying because of a personal failure or because of a positive experience, so more of that joyful kind of crying, their mood was better afterwards. And the way they thought about this was that perhaps if, say, you're crying... For a personal failure, say you've lost your job and you're crying with someone else, someone might reassure you about, oh, it's okay, you're going to find another one, you'll be, yeah. you'll get through this, that sort of thing. Whereas conflict or seeing someone else suffer was related to a worse mood. So they thought maybe it was about control and sense of mm. agency that in those circumstances, someone else... Because you can't do anything about you it. You can't do anything about it, it's just a shitty situation. It's yeah. all a mess. Yeah. Whereas if there's something that you can do and have some sort of action, that then perhaps mm, that's more positive. Yeah, or like the processing of grief or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I found it quite interesting about just that day-to-day -day variation and I think as well about the... I feel like we don't talk about how much people cry and people either... Like, I think a lot of people assume that people around them don't cry much but mm. you know 10 times over a roughly two month period isn't infrequent as the average no it's it's more than weekly it is very curious i mean they did they have put together positive crying mm. and and versus negative crying they Assum also assuming you could you can actually delineate that but i, th I think you probably could yeah they also used um, pen and paper diaries and they said that they thought that it would be useful to do electronic so that you could make sure about timestamps. Yeah. So that 
the other thing that they thought was that there might be a difference between say you've cried in the morning and then the day has felt shitty because you've started the day on a bad note and then it's just felt like I can't dig myself Mm. out of this. Your mood might be worse at night time. It might also be worse if you've had an argument with someone and cried just before you fill in your journal. So they were kind of like, well, you'd need to look at how you feel immediately after as well as then a few hours after the issues resolved. Yeah, or like, or if you got, if you looked at the mood ratings, say the day before the crying mm. and the day after the crying and then did like a, a, mm. a, a change thing. The problem with cha- doing change variables is you double the measurement error and, yeah. and it's harder to pick up a thing. But mm. but yeah, interesting, mm. interesting study. And, and yeah, because the study I also looked at, two Wait. of the three were retrospective. Yeah. And you, you really want that power of the, does it actually help? Mm. And I mean, one of the things I always ask my patients and when I teach my students is you always ask how the therapy session was like mm. was it helpful not helpful yeah how did you feel about it afterwards mm. um, how did you feel on the drive home or yep. the well or the when next you got day? back to your house yeah yeah like so because because you because what you're wanting to gauge is is what's going on and I think that what we've discussed is shows that crying is important mm. like it, it you know it, it's a rawness of emotions i always think about it as, you know you're getting connected with emotions mm. whether they're positive mm, or not or not you're tapping into them but they're not uniformly it's not mm. uniformly a beneficial experience no and it can be but sometimes there needs to be some more work mm. or people need to check in yeah i also found it interesting with this one that you know, they pretty consistently showed this same pattern of a worsening mood in general before people cried. And it made me think, you know, often people express surprise about the fact that they've burst into tears or something like that. And that, you know, if if you're concerned about how much you're crying or feeling like it sneaks up on you, doing a bit more of that checking in on yourself about how am I going actually is a pretty good predictor that something's about to crash like if you kind of notice a few days where you're feeling a bit more off you're likely heading towards that sort of yep. crescendo of things yeah it doesn't just come out of the blue um i mean i guess the one thing we haven't covered is that po- that positive crying and uh and things like, like with that. happiness yeah mm. yeah it's sort of interesting mm. again i feel like it's it's got a different feel to it and a different response societally to it yeah. and yeah I can't imagine that as many people would think that it was a problem. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Shall we, uh, on that note, should we take a break? Yes, I think so. <laughs> we are going to take a quick break and come back with things we come across. See you soon.
Cheers. Cheers. Mm, that's good. Yeah. Um, that works. We're drinking amaretto sour. Mm. Courtesy of my work colleague, Sabina. Nice. She uh, Is she the provider of the amaretto? Uh, no, she's the provider of the recipe. Ah, I um, see. She was telling me about them. Yep. And uh, yeah, Convent. Last time I had them, I was not in a good way the next day. No, you were not. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of text from Amy. I'm <laughs> suffering. <laughs> this is part of the show we say thanks. Mm. We, I don't think we've done a, a break in a, in a pod for a while. Yeah, no, you wouldn't let me the last couple. No, we did have a guest in the last one. Sorry? Yeah, uh, if you want to... <laughs> <laughs> so, we, we've, uh, we, we did take a bit of a break. We've had some life things going on, mm. uh, respectively. And we've been watching Survivor, mm. uh, Australian Survivor, um, which is great. Jeez, I'm happy that's back on. It's also... It's I'm much more excited about it than the Olympics, I have to say. Yeah, me too. But also it's interesting how much easier both of us find to predict what's going to happen or to understand the gameplay with the Australian one than the American yeah, one. Yeah, totally. Like there's some cultural thing that happens there mm-hmm. where we both get far more into it. Anyway, yeah. uh, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope the, um, the sad music's not getting you down. And uh, if you do want to listen to any of our episodes... You can go to our website, trishingspod.com. Or Spotify. Or Spotify, yeah. Listen to us on Spotify. and mm. Or a- Apple. A- yeah, or Apple. A- Amy's been doing some good work putting some nice pictures for all the episodes on Spotify. I have, because unlike Apple, they show each episode picture. And so then all of a sudden, we looked quite boring. And so I've been working. Yep. I like that. Was it the ink blots for the personality, mm. stories? personality disorder series? Mm. Very good. Anyway. Please contact us anytime you like on the email address that we provide to you, gtrinkspot <laughs> at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, look we're, just, look, we're just rambling, so let's just cut to things we came across. We'll um, see you soon. Things we came across, Amy. <laughs> what have you got for us? Well, what's things? Right. That, what's things we came across for the listeners who have not listened to the show before? It's the random things you stumble across when you're looking for something else. Yeah. So particularly for a show like this, we go looking for research articles. Stuff pops up. Yep. Sometimes what we talk about is something we've gone looking for deliberately. Yep. This one, I was legitimately looking for articles on Lego in therapy mm-hmm. because I was considering running a Lego therapy group. Mm-hmm. And I came across something that's really relevant and helpful Mm -hmm. for this purpose. I think you're going to love it. It's called, When Do Octopuses Play? Effects Mm -hmm. of Repeated Testing, Object Type, Age, and Food Deprivation on Object Play in Octopus Vulgaris by Cuba and colleagues. They got octopuses to play with Lego. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) 2006, Journal of Comparative Psychology. Yep. Yep. So we've all met a playful octopus, mm. but we don't know when they play. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
you with me so far? Yeah. Yeah. A criteria of play in research world is that it's got to be something that isn't completely functional. So, like pretending to pour a cup of tea. Yeah. Without real tea. It's spontaneous, done for its own sake. It's different from other behavior. I think we got it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> for kids, they come across a new object, they explore it a bit, check out what it is, and then start playing with it. And so they wanted to look at octopuses, a play behavior. Yeah. So they had 14 octopuses. Octopi. Uh, well, they say pusses. No, it's definitely octopi. Well, see, I've had many arguments with people about this, but I'm going to go right, with let's Google it while you're talking. Yeah. The octopus researchers on yep. this one. Yeah. So they were freshly caught. For some reason, this was important. I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> it's because they made him into calamari. <laughs> <laughs> they were both sub-adult and adult octopus, which I assume means like teenage and adult. Anyway. Okay. Grammatically speaking, the plural for octopus is octopuses, as the Merriam-Webster dictionary points out. People use three different terms, octopi, octopuses, and octopodes. Huh. Whilst octopi became popular in modern usage, it is wrong. There you go. I think it's got something to do with Greek origins or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, so they presented these 14 dudes with one object at a time, either food items, clams or mussels, or two different inanimate objects made of Lego. One was a smooth surface black and white cube, and one was a blue snowflake with lots of little bumpy bits all over it. Octopuses can't see colour, so they were thinking that wouldn't play any part in what they were interested in. They carried out the experiment either two hours or 24 hours after they were being fed, Mm -hmm. and they did this experiment daily. They had, the octopus had 30 minutes with the Lego or with the food for two weeks. There were different levels of interaction, as with children when they're playing, holding it to mouth, exploring it with tentacles, again like children, (laughs) push-pull motions, passing between their arms, juggling, towing it and floating it on the surface of the water, and then repeating these actions. Once they did either push-pull, passing between them, or towing it, it was counted multiple times. It was counted as play if they repeated that. Yeah. Didn't play with their food. Very polite in that way. Mm-hmm. They didn't even play with the clam shells once they'd eaten the clams. They just yep. discarded it, moved on. Nine out of 14 played with the Lego. So both young octopuses and adult octopuses mm-hmm. played equally. Yep. The recency of feeding didn't make a difference. Yep. Good to play any time. And the play behavior increased over what the was week. It, was, was, it, was it nine male octopus? <laughs> 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 I don't and, think they're middle, five middle aged <laughs> female <middle-aged laughs> octopi. So we're like, just give me like, some more clams. No, <laughs> just give me some more. I know what you're Is doing. Is there any oysters here? What's going well, on? they did comment. So there was, you know, the description of how they played, etc. Apparently, there's one breed of octopus that likes to blow air on the object and make it bounce around. These guys don't do that. They did then put a paragraph on further observations, which was about an adult female octopus who had been fed a large snail the day before the testing started, didn't eat all of it, and then it exuded some gases and started floating to the surface, and she played with that instead of the other things. (laughs) That is gross. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It was type level 3A type contact. It was pretty involved. Yep. And someone got paid to do this research? Someone got paid to do it. They they think that, like, it's evolutionary evolutionary helpful. Yeah, that's the guy. Yep. To play. 
because you can practice prey behaviors you can explore the environment like children are you know working like out whale, how they hunt the things the killer whales that like flip the the baby seals around yeah. and the cat the toys with the mice yeah. before yeah. munching got to play <laughs> Oct- octopi done yeah so uh I came across mine. I think you. I was like, it was straight up in my crying research. Yeah. So most psych students would know the story of little Albert, mm. right? So little Albert was uh, is used in textbooks as an instance of classical conditioning. So classical conditioning is where there's a pairing of some kind of external stimuli, and usually it's sort of mundane it doesn't have any sort of yep. response to it yeah and then and then it creates like a physiological you pair it with something else and and it creates a physiological response so there's pavlov pavlov's dogs like you would ring a bell mm. every time you'd serve food to a dog and then he would ring a bell and no didn't serve the food to the dog and in both instances the dog would uh salivate right it, it makes me think of that cartoon that's like the don't and yeah the <laughs> no was <laughs> where the the dog saying to his friend every time I draw, he writes on his notepad. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> it's like the reverse. It's, uh, psychology jokes aren't funny, Amy. Um, and anyway, so disagree. So this is this is a theory called classical conditioning, and it's quite useful theory to know for a whole lot of reasons, like saying trauma and things mm. like that. There was this experiment with little Albert, which what do you understand little Albert to be? That little baby, yep. little Albert, was placed in an experiment where he was handed or shown a white rabbit and that was paired with this loud noise or something like that from memory. And that then over time, he then became scared of the rabbit, even when the noise wasn't yep. played. Yep, that's right. So at the time of writing this article, which is, did little Albert actually acquire a conditioned fear of furry animals? Mm-hmm. What the film evidence tells us by Powell and Schmaltz in History of Psychology 2021, mm-hmm. over 25,000 citations, right? <laughs> wow, yep. Right, it's the most famous single case in conditioning history mm-hmm. and also widely cited as an example of the lack of ethical guidelines in <laughs> yes. early psychology. Yes, um, was the 50s, was it? Uh, 1920. 20s. Ni- oh. I think the film is 1920, hmm. the study is. They, they think it might have been 1919 that they did the thing. Mm. And so... Basically, this is a paper where they have gone back and looked at the original film Mm -hmm. and concluded that they don't actually think that little Albert acquired a conditioned fear. So there there was some criticisms already by some previous authors. Mm. And 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 what these authors have concluded is the negative reactions displayed in the film can be readily explained by non-conditioning factors such as sensitization and maturation influences on fear development and also some cases contradict the possibility he was fearful mm. of actually the stimulus so he was having a reaction but not necessarily a fear reaction uh no not even that so like so what actually happened in it right is and i never even learned about all this stuff mm. and you can apparently watch the film online mm. there was a baseline session mm-hmm. so they had little albert playing with a range of different objects a white rat a rabbit donkey a dog things like this and that was followed two months later so he was nine months old then two months later so he was 11 months old he was subjected to a total of seven pairings of a white rat followed by a startling sound of a steel bar being struck with a hammer hmm. 
By the end of the second conditioning session, when Albert was shown the rat, he reportedly cried and began to crawl away. So rapidly, he was caught with difficulty before before reaching the edge of the table. <laughs> Poor little bugger. And Any- also, rat, not rabbit. Yeah. And two-month gap. Yeah. So anyway, mm. so this is interpreted as these reactions as evidence of fear conditioning. Mm-hmm. Right. There was three transfer sessions post, right? Shown the rat, see whether he was still has the condition fear, mm-hmm. but also other furry animals to determine whether the fear had transferred or generalized, right? But in the second session, they included two conditioning trials with the rat to freshen up the reaction, <laughs> right? Okay, yeah. As well as conditioning trials with the dog and the rabbit were, for the first time, also paired with a loud noise. There was also an incident that occurred in that session in which the dog that Albert was being shown mm-hmm. suddenly barked and frightened both yeah. Albert and everyone else in the room. Oh. Unlike the two conditioning session sessions, two transfer sessions were separated with about a week. Mm-hmm. There was a final transfer session about a month later. And immediately following that session, Albert and his mother left the hospital. <laughs> yeah. And, and so what Watson and Rayner, the study authors, mm. had wanted to actually see if they could remove any fear kind of stuff. Mm. So, look, long story short, they don't actually think that he there was no evidence of yeah. fear conditioning right there's sort of an inconsistency in his reactions particularly what they noticed was that albert had a lack of attention to the rat during the transfer mm. session and so not only there's no fear but he might have actually not even noticed habituated to it so like the babies in the study before getting distracted by their shoes rather than looking yeah you go well you count that out not that yeah. counts as a trial. Yeah. Yeah. And so they have this actually really well written discussion about how come this is like what's happened here? Mm. Why a hundred years later are we still talking about little Albert? Yeah. And this sort of seemed to think that there was like a confirmation bias mm. for people at the time and since who watch it. Mm-hmm. And also that Watson himself was very keen to sort of promote these findings as a way of funding his research and clearly did Mm. get a lot of stuff and stimulate a lot of people into behavioral research and Mm. and stuff like that interesting and there's an interesting little discussion at the end about uh, watson and rayner claimed the principal reason for choosing little albert for the experiment was his solid and his stolid and unemotional temperament and they would assumed that the experiment would therefore do him relatively little harm. <laughs> and they, on the basis of looking at this evidence, the, the authors of this study would suggest that that's true. Yeah. So, you know, they talk about viewer expectation likely plays a role and, and sort of people sort of viewing him backing away. Mm. People go, oh, that's a fake thing. But actually, just, people just got that expectation. Yeah. It's normal behavior for a child. Yeah. And whilst this author has sort of been... <laughs> people kind of go oh you know this author was really bad and unethical mm. actually watson um was quite progressive in his writing and sort of saying that he at the time was suggesting minimization of physical punishment to children mm. which was very very progressive yeah. for that era absolutely um although apparently he was also quite like you know you only need to show children a minimal amount of affection yeah. as well so yeah Complex individual, <laughs> but um, I thought it was fascinating because the this sort of history, mm. but also just you know ahead of their game with the early replication prices in yes, psychology. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. It's been a long one, but a good one. Yeah, we'll be back with an episode on laughter. Yes. Yes. And we're going to continue on this vibe for a little bit. Exactly. We've been two strings, buddy. We'll see you soon. Bye.